What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, then you know this program is a thought leadership series that enlightens and inspires listeners with insights from distinguished business leaders and subject matter experts. Our conversations are designed to make you think, inspire you to ever reach higher for cultivating your best, and take an informed approach toward leadership and business. Our guest today is Patrick Bet David, a prolific content creator, producer, author, and CEO of both PHP Agents and Valuetainment Media. He's the author of the soon-to-be-released book called Your Next Five Moves. Think clearer, solve faster, scale bigger, and achieve your vision as an entrepreneur. We'll be talking about his book and a few of the key concepts that caught my attention that I think will fundamentally alter your course for the better if only you'll lean in and listen generously. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. Patrick, welcome to Working on Purpose. It's good to be on, Elise. So great to share with my listeners. I can't wait. It's my turn to share you. You ready? Yes, let's go. Okay. Well, there is so much that goes into this being of Patrick Bet David. And of course, you know, I'm one of your 4 million fans. So I want to open the conversation, if we can, Patrick, by just presencing some of the things that I really appreciate about you. And those include an immigrant who makes America great, a trailblazing entrepreneur, business leader, a chief educator of business, someone who has a well-earned the right to call himself and make his father proud that you have the name that David. Those are just a few of the things that I want to talk about. You game? Yes, let's go. I'm okay. ready. Well, let's start with your, your heritage and just how it is you came to the United States. It's such an amazing story. I wish I had more time for you to tell all the details, but talk to us about what it was like to, to leave your country of Tehran, Iran, and just what, literally in the, the nick of time, coming here, getting settled, going to the Army, your, your early career as in, in financial services. So, so I was obviously born and raised in Iran. I lived there 10 years. And one of the things about us in Iran is we would, we would dream about one day coming to America to the point where every time somebody got their green card or somebody was going to Austria to come to U.S. or somebody was going to Spain, France, or Germany to come to U.S., we would put a big party for them. And everybody would go there and you are happy for them but secretly envious because you can't wait to come over here. And uh, so while I was living there, I was going to school six weeks after Khomeini died. My parents just got sick of it. They were worried because they thought they uh, were not going to let me leave the country and I'd be forced to serve the military. They said, we have to leave. So we eventually escaped. We went to Germany. I lived at a refugee camp in Germany for uh, nearly 18, 19 months. And then we came over here to the States, November 28, 1990. When I went to the airport, I was looking for Rocky. I couldn't find (laughs) Sylvester Stallone. I wanted to know where he was. I thought all the Hollywood celebrities would be lined up when we arrived at John F. Kennedy Airport, but uh, (laughs) that was not the case. Eventually ended up in Glendale, California, lived there for a few years, and uh, right after high school, I joined the Army, 101st Airborne Division, Air Assault. I got out of the military. My plans were to be a bodybuilder, almost like a 
uh, Middle Eastern Arnold, win Mr. Olympia, go into Hollywood, marry a Kennedy, eventually become a governor. But uh, I met a uh, uh, woman in, uh, uh, in uh, Venice Beach who uh, her and I started dating and she was working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter at the time. And she would always pick me up in a different car and I said, what do you do for a living? She says, I work at Morgan Stanley. I said, how do you work over there? She says, well, I went to UCLA. I said, I want to work at Morgan Stanley. She said, they don't hire people without a four-year degree. I said, I'm not going to college. So eventually, long story short, I took my uh, resume at the time, which was quite impressive. It had Burger King on it, <laughs> Bob's Big Boy, haagen the U.S. Army, and Bally Total Fitness without a four-year degree or an associate's degree. And at that time, we used to fax resumes. I ended up faxing my resume to 100 different uh, uh, offices and branches, whether it was Morgan, Merrill, Schwab, Goldman, Smith, Barney, everybody. And uh, my cover letter had my best joke at the time. And at the bottom of the joke, it said, if you're laughing, this is exactly how my clients are going to feel when they do business with me. They're going to love me. If you want somebody like me on your team, give me a call. And uh, once I faxed the resume and the cover letter, I uh, got 30 callbacks. 15 of them said, very creative, but you're not qualified. The other 15 gave me uh, uh, interview offers, went to the interview, and then eventually three of them gave me a job offer at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. I took Morgan uh, Glendale the day before 9-11, which was a Monday, was my first day, got my Series 7, 66, 26, life and health, all the licenses. And then eventually I left and went to Transamerica, and then October of 09, I started my own insurance agency and grew that from uh, 66 agents to now over 15,000 agents nationwide, and somewhere along the line, Value Taming got started. Yeah, okay. So I want to talk about, this is just so great, Patrick. Anybody listening to this has got to be leaning in going, oh my gosh, how do I get more of that? Well, your book and this conversation is going to give them more of that. But I don't want to skip over the fact that you are an entrepreneur. You came to the United States as you did. You just shared that. And you started this company when you were 29 years old, Patrick. That's crazy. It's amazing. And that you convinced those 66 agents to join you then and what you're doing today. So for the rest of you who didn't catch that, so it started then, has uh, 66 agents start. Now you have 13,000 agents with 120 offices in 49 states in Puerto Rico. And your vision is to be the largest field marketing organization with a global force of 500,000 agents mm-hmm. by 2039. So paint the picture for us. Why does this vision so compel you? So so uh, the, the number you took from the website, 13,120 offices, that was a few months back. We're at 15,000 now, 15,000 with 130 plus, which means I need to get with my website person to that number. <laughs> Can't keep but, up, Patrick. You know, you know the, the thing for me was uh, very simple. I, uh, I just have no desire to do anything that's uh, 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 small. And here's why. Here's why. Let me explain it so it, this makes sense to everybody. When we came to the States, I was a guy who, you know, when I turned 18, I went to the Army. All I wanted to do was party. That's all I did. I was just a party guy. I always wanted to go out, have a good time. Uh, You know, five days a week, you'd find me at a nightclub or at a bar. And then eventually, my dad ended up having a heart attack. I went to UCLA Medical Center to check on this guy. And my dad and I are best friends at this point. And uh, when I was at the hospital... Uh, I was kicked out because I made a mess. I was upset because they were not taking care of him and I didn't like the food they brought him. Finally, the lady calls the security. They come upstairs to kick me on. They say, listen, who are you to tell us what to do? This is a government hospital. You don't, you're not paying for this. Taxpayers are paying for this. And I got kicked out. So I go downstairs. I'm sitting in my 2002 Ford Focus. I'm 6'4", 6'5". I barely fit in this Ford Focus, but I'm sitting in my Ford Focus. 
and I'm uh, crying like a little baby, and I'm asking myself, how much longer is this going to be continuing? And then that same year, I went to a Christmas party with my dad, and uh, a lot of our relatives were kind of looking down at my family, like, well, you know what, you know, Patrick and the David family, and my dad was kind of working at a 99 cent store, and I've never liked people to feel bad or feel sorry for the family. I've never, I've never been a fan of that. I don't want to anybody think we're victims or anything. So when the family started kind of making fun of my uh, dad and our family at the Christmas party, I said, listen, I'm sorry, you, you don't talk about our family this way. And they oh, we're just joking. We're kidding. I said, yeah, you don't joke with me being around, nor do you joke about my dad who did so much for you guys. Patrick, it's just a joke. It's Christmas. I said, no, we're leaving. My dad's like, we're not leaving. I said, dad, we're leaving. We're not here to be a laughing stock for anybody. So we left. We got in the car for 30 minutes on the way back. I told my dad, I said, the world is going to know our last name. Now, at this point, I'm 26 years old. The only people that know who I am is the local community of financial advisors because I have a reputation in L.A. at the time. But nothing more, nothing less. I said, watch what's going to happen. Sat the family down. I said, we're going to go out there and do something where everybody is going to know your last name, Pops. They're going to know what David last name is and how many sacrifices you made. Long story short, long story short, that happens once I get into the financial industry and we start PHP. I just told myself, if we're going to do something, we're not going to do something small. If I wanted to do something small, I'd stay where I was at. We're only doing it to do something that's never been done before. And that number was 500,000 licensed agents by 2029. And uh, for somebody like me who came to America uh, with the dream of one day, you know, America's all about the dream, right? You leave Iran, you come to America hoping to live that American dream. And to live that American dream, it starts through entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship. And I chose to go the entrepreneur route first. And then I became the entrepreneur. And then when I got up on stage and I said, we're going to have a half a million licensed agents in front of 66 people, they thought I was nuts. But uh, enough of them believed in us. And uh, we've made some progress from there to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, progress to be celebrated. And you know I revere it, which is why one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the show and share you, Patrick. Um, okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is you're a media celebrity and a chief educator, and I have to situate this for our listeners in that, you know, you didn't go through the formal education system, and I think that's probably part of the reason you become so successful as you are today, but you started in 2013 making two-minute videos about what worked for you in business. Mm-hmm. You put them on YouTube. You got 60 subscribers, as I understand it, that first year. Mm-hmm. Then you changed the name from your own to Valuetainment, and three years later, you grew into 100,000 subscribers. Now, I looked yesterday it looks like you have 2.3 million subscribers on youtube so you are a a a content creator maniac patrick where does all that come from all the energy the zest to create all that content so originally you know you know for me i i'm all about seeing if i actually have a product meaning when we first started creating content i told myself and i told mario i said if there is not an audience for the topics I'm talking about. We're not going to do it because, you know, I'm just not going to be doing that. I just want to make sure there's an audience for it. So once I got specific about what word we're going to create content for, which was entrepreneurs, things changed because we we were originally wide, which means we were talking about so many different topics. Then I said, we're going to go narrow and all we're going to talk about is entrepreneurship. Then we created momentum and then we are where we are today. Obviously, my main motivation with creating content was I was hoping that there was a channel out there that I would want to have at the age of 26, 27, 28, and say I'm running a business that's doing a million dollars or $5 million per year, 
and I want to figure out a way how to get that business to $10, $100 million per year. I wanted a channel that did that. And that's exactly how Vitamin got created. And once I realized that there was an audience for it, and uh, by the way, it takes a lot of effort to create content, to have a business that you're running with employees, with investors, with attorneys, with carriers, with partners, with a wife, with three kids, with family, friends, trying to stay in shape, reading, exercising, all of that stuff takes a lot of effort. But, uh, you know, the audience energizes you. And the more I learn, the more excited I get to want to share more content with the audience. And obviously, it's turned into what it is today. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that we can also prove, if you will, that there there's some some real resonance for people is that you managed in your first big conference in May of last year, 2019, to attract 600 entrepreneurs from 43 different countries and 140 industries. And it looks like you had to postpone this one or cancel this one this year. But that's your that was your first big conference, and you got those numbers. Yeah, it was actually very interesting to know. You know, there's a different story between having content and you put an event together and you're charging. Yeah. Them. Thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars for tickets, and people showed up from all over the world, and you know, businesses running a million a year to all the way up to half a billion a year, and uh, very, very excited to see what happened there. And obviously, we were looking for this year's because this year's we were anticipating four thousand, but the pandemic threw us a curveball, so we had to make some adjustments with it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that very much, and respect your your choice there. Okay, so the last thing I want to present for our listeners that I really appreciate about you, Patrick, there's many things I could go on and say, but for the, for this for the sake of time, I really appreciate the the father, friend, and mentor you are to so many. I, I hear people over and over again remark about your incredible ability to remember their details, their issues when they come to you with something. People maybe you have met one time, and you take all of these men- mentees on. you've got this huge focus on helping other people. So the first thing I want to understand, you just presence for us what your world is like. How do you get the energy to be of such service to so many other people? And how do you summon that ferocity to do it? Yeah, I mean, it must matter to you. You know, for instance, I can't go up. Some people can play video games for hours and they just really enjoy doing it. I can't do it for hours. I used to play Fester's Quest and Zelda and Mario and, you know, Final Fantasy decades ago. But I have no desire for it today. My desire today is what I'm doing. When, my, when, when I got to a point, when I got clear for myself, the biggest thing for me was clarity. Clarity gives you so much confidence that uh, words can't even describe. I got clear at a point where I said, okay, Pat, the first 20 years of your life is to learn about human nature experiences and try to not make any massive mistakes in your first 20 years, you know? Not a felony. Don't go to jail. Don't try to do anything that's going to totally ruin your career. Make some mistakes, but not the big ones that's going to cost you a lot. So the second phase of my life was to find an industry and find a skill and a trade that I can get very good at and get behind it. So I found financial industry. I've always liked numbers and I love people. So I said, I'm going to go do this for 20 years. I know a lot of people say things like, I'll try it out for six months. I'll try it out for two years or five years. Let's see how it does. I said, I'm going 20 years. And the reason why I said I'm going 20 years is because too often I see people will go from industry to industry to industry to industry. And every single time they're about to experience momentum, they leave it because they hit a wall and it's frustrating and they hit a plateau and they say, you know what? I don't think this industry is for me. So then they go to another industry. Then they go to another industry and they go to another industry And what they're not uh, able to maximize is that momentum, the compounding effect effect Mm -hmm. of 
massive momentum that builds up and all of a sudden makes an average person look like a rock star, they don't experience that. So for me, you know, the energy came from having a vision that excites me every morning when I wake up. And once that vision excites me and I got clear on what I could do and I got confident about my abilities, then I found the right people. Then the rest was to ask myself, how big do we want to build this? Do we want to be a regional market? Do we want to be a statewide, you know, people know us in the state of California? Do we want to be national? How big do we want to build this, uh, Poppy, here? And, uh, you know, that's kind of the next question you ask and you say, when, what is the level where you're comfortable with? What are you confident with? Where are we going to be content with? And then at that point, when you start winning and making money, that's when you really realize how big you uh, think. Because it's easy to say, I, I think very big when you're making $50,000 or $100,000 and you start making a quarter million dollars, a half a million dollars, then you make a million dollar year income, you got nice cars parked in a garage in a 15,000 square foot home, you've been all over the world, visited 40 countries, you've had dinner with the most strangest people and personalities that you've admired, now why do you want to work even harder? That's when you kind of hit a wall. So this is why my uh, basic business success model comes down to model comes down to four different things. Number one is outwork. But uh, most people think it's just work. You can work and still not be the best. Number two is out-improve. But you can out-work and out-improve, and you still won't be the best. Number three is out-strategize. But you can out-work and out-improve and out-strategize your peers, and you still could not be the best. Because the last one (laughs) is very hard. And the last one is outlast. Most people can't last. When you compete with somebody in a game, in any business you're playing, in sports, in the war, in military, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's in a capitalistic nation like the one we're living in, at least we're currently living in, is you outwork, you outimprove, you outstrategize, and if you show that you're willing to tolerate pain more than your competitors, eventually one day you're gonna look around and you're gonna say, wait a minute, we're officially the biggest out there in the marketplace. How did this happen? Because of those four criterias. Mm. Can listen to you all day long. But on that note, let's grab our first break. I'm Elise Cortez. We're in the air with Patrick Bet David, who is a prolific content creator, producer, author, and CEO of both PHP Agency and Valuetainment Media. He's the author of the soon be- to be released book called Your Next Five Moves Think Clear, Solve Faster, Scale Bigger, and Achieve Your Vision as an Entrepreneur. He joined today from Dallas, Texas. We've been talking a bit about his approach and some of the things that really distinguish him as a businessman, as a human being. After the break, we're going to talk about a few of the key technical tools that I took from his book that I think will really help you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. 
Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Patrick Bet David, a prolific content creator, producer, author, and CEO of both PHP Agency and Valuetainment Media. He has cultivated an extremely engaged organic fan base of over 4 million followers across five media platforms and has an unapologetic and thought-provoking approach to education, conversations, and business. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So for this segment, Patrick, I just want to focus in a, on a few of what I consider to be the, the technical tools that you give in your book. And I first want to say, I think you have given us a gift. Oh, my gosh, how you crafted this incredibly tight book. It's full of inspiration. All kind, I think it's, it represents a lifetime of your lessons as a human being and as a businessman. So first, you got plenty of other things to do. Why did you write this book and why, what do you hope it does for its, its readers? So, so the reason why I wrote this book is because, you know, I was sitting down watching this guy play chess and Magnus Carlsen, who a young phenom comes up and he becomes the best uh, grandmaster in the marketplace. Everybody's following this guy. How is he beating everybody? He became this incredible story. And one of the co- quotes, they talked about knowing he knows his next 15 moves. A grandmaster knows his next 15 moves. And I sat there and I said, you know, it's interesting. Every time I do any kind of business planning, I'll sit there and I grab a paper and pen. I like to be around a board and have a marker to write on, but I also have a paper and pen on the side. And I'll list out issues, challenges, enemies, problems, allies, everything. And the big goal that we have in mind of what we want to do. And then from there, we work on our next steps on what we need to do. Sometimes the challenge about making the next steps that we need to put in place is the sequence, meaning People generally have the right idea of what they want to do and what they want to achieve. But the sequencing of their next moves is why they don't achieve it. For example, a lot of times people are tempted to do move 19 on move 3. When you make move 19 on move 3, you've done it so far ahead that you could take a massive hit and end up taking steps back because of not being patient enough on when you make your move number 19. When you're playing the game of chess, there's certain moves you make. There's certain moves you don't make right up front because one, you, you know, you're not ready for it. Number two, you don't want to disclose it to the opponent too early because if you do, he knows exactly what you're getting ready to do. And uh, the, the last one is just because you still haven't uh, developed yourself to be strong enough to make that next final move that you want to make. So I wrote this book because we were sitting around and talking to our uh, peers and they were asking me, Pat, how do you come up with your next moves? Every time you say you're going to be doing something, you come out with a strategy, you start an insurance agency, you do this, and you started a YouTube channel, and you went from nobody knowing what you were doing, and one of the toughest platforms to create subscribers on is not Instagram or you know, some of Facebook. It's very hard to do it on YouTube because YouTube is, uh, demands a lot of solid content. It's, it's very challenging on YouTube, and we were able to create that kind of a content. Well, I said it's because of these next five move strategies that I use. So typically it's 15 moves, but uh, the book, the way it was written, it was broken down into five moves with each of them having three different chapters to write about. So it's a total of 15 chapters and the five moves. And so somebody could read this book and they could say, you know what? I don't know if I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't know if I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a solopreneur. I don't know if I want to be a solopreneur. I want to be a number six in a company. And I don't want to have all the pressures. I don't even want to be a president. I just want to be a person in the company that brings value and hopefully I'll get some equity. And when the company has an exit, I get my $600,000 check or $2 million check or $10 million check. Or look, I don't want to be the founder, but I want to work in shadow under somebody and learn so much from him or her and eventually ask that person that, hey, 
I want to now be the CEO of the company or the president of the company and give me 2% of the company. And so if the company sells, you get a $50 million check or a $20 million check or $100 million check. Or even for a guy like Steve Ballmer, you're worth $59 billion. And he was mm-hmm. never an entrepreneur. He was an entrepreneur for you know, Bill Gates. So the, the key is knowing who you want to be and then knowing the kind of a life you want to live. And then based on who you want to be and the life you want to live, map out exactly your next 5, 10, 15 moves on how to get there. Oh, that was so crisp. There's so much more I could ask about that. I do want to try to get a couple of those, the specific tools that you offer in your book and before we go to our next segment, which is more about on the conceptual level. Sure. So I do want to, if you would, please, Patrick, that personal identity audit that you talk about, I think is so critical. And I think either you you developed it from what was you got from somebody else, but help us understand why it works so well in getting to understand who we are and where we want to be, who we want to be in life. You know, what's crazy is most of us spend uh, our entire lives studying other people. Uh, you, you study <laughs> George Washington. You study, mm-hmm. you know, Alexander the Great. We end up studying all these philosophers. We study everybody except for one person. We don't study ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and if we don't study ourselves, how are we supposed to move ourselves? If you don't study yourself, no wonder so many people are insecure because everybody is studying everybody else thinking they have to be like everybody else to be good enough and you constantly compare your bad to their good and you fall apart and you you play defense you don't play offense you kind of hide you don't want to be around people because what if they find out your weaknesses versus if you sit there and do it the other way around and you take a time out and you study yourself and you take these questions which i went through and it brought out the worst sides of me, the weaknesses I have, my flaws, my insecurities. And then I finally sat there and I said, listen, it's all good. This is you. I'm fine with this. It's fine why, you know, this happened in your life that led to this. So I did these questions years ago and eventually got me to get so clear of who I wanted to be. And I was so confident and comfortable in my own skin. And eventually that helped me get to the next level. And by the way, this is coming from a guy that had given up on everything in life. And I thought military was just a route for me because it offered me good benefits. That was literally my decision. I said, I'm gonna go in the army because they give you a good salary. They give you a place, and by the way, good salary was $1,200 a month. They give you a place to live. They give you benefits. They're gonna give me a GI bill. And later on, my kids are gonna get the benefits and I'm gonna meet my wife in the military. That's how small I was thinking. And then I asked the tougher questions I get out and I said, wait a minute, maybe I can do something bigger with my life. So the personal identity questionnaire was built for people to be able to ask the tough questions of themselves. And by by them going through those questions, it empowers them and encourages them to want to take the next uh, necessary steps. Gorgeous. And then along that line, too, be, I would say the next extension of that is you discovered four ways that people are generally driven. And, and that gets to motivation and that you talk about the importance of each of us understanding what drives us so that, one, we can steward that for ourselves. And two, if you're trying to manage somebody, you recognize what drives them. Will you say a little bit about those four drivers? Yeah. So the four drivers, you know, I, I lead an organization with 15,000 people and one of the things I learned the hard way is the fact that you can't motivate everybody the same way. Not everybody is driven by the same thing. I remember I was working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter and I was 21 years old and I got up in front of a client, group of clients, and I said, you know, can you imagine if one day you have a Ferrari and you have a house on Pebble Beach and you're living in this 10,000 square foot house on the water 
and you're traveling all over the world. And I'm saying all this stuff, except yeah. my audience, the average age was 65 years old. They could care less about a Ferrari. They could care less about a bigger house. They could care less about a waterfront property. They want security, freedom, peace of mind. And I was speaking to the wrong audience. And then I went to a different audience. And in front of the other audience, they were in their early 20s, college graduates, just finished everything. And here I am speaking to them and saying, can you imagine if one day you have a retirement plan with an annuity that pays you a stream of income for the rest of your life and you're able to spend the time with your grandkids and and sitting there and you listen to the conversations and they're looking at me bored out of their minds because (laughs) what 23 year old is thinking about retirement? None of them are. So I learned about how to move myself based on what drives me at the different stage I'm at. So let me kind of give you an idea about some of these things that drive people. There's 20 different things and they're broken down into four different areas. First one is people that are driven by advancement. For example, there are those that all they want to do is what's the next promotion I need to get. Okay, I went from being an employee to a a assistant manager to a manager. Now I'm a director. Now I'm a VP of operations. Now I'm a COO. Now I'm a president. What do I need to do because I want my next promotion? There are those that like to complete tasks. There are those that like to meet deadlines. And there are those that like to reach a goal as a team. That's advancement. Individuality are those who want lifestyle, cars, homes, jewelry, clothes. They're driven by lifestyle recognition and security. I want to be secure. It's I. I want to be recognized. I want to live a big life. It's a lot of I, right? And again, nothing wrong with that. Next one is madness. These are people that are driven by opposition. They want an enemy. I know this sounds weird to some people if you're not driven by, but if you're one like this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They want an opposition. They want competition. They want control. They have to be in control of what they're doing. They want to experience power and fame. And by the way, if somebody's listening to this saying, what a narcissistic type of an individual this is. Well, if you think of them that way, just so you know, many big companies and great teams are built by these people. If you don't know how to lead them, these are the kind of people that you want on your team only if you know how to lead them. So opposition, competition, control, power and fame, proving others wrong, the need to avoid embarrassment, mastery and desire to be the best, meaning they wanna break records. And the last one is those who are driven by purpose, making history, helping others, change, impact, enlightenment and self-actualization. So. When you listen to this, you may say, well, the 27-year-old version of me was about individuality. Well, the 34-year-old version of me was madness. The 44-year-old version of me was about advancement. And quite frankly, today I'm about purpose. It evolves. You're not going to be the same face for the rest of your life. It changes as life changes. But it's important for you to know, one, which one of these drives you today, and two, what drives your people. And if you can figure those two things out, the rest is history. Beautiful, Patrick. Very crisp and a perfect way to take us into our last break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We're on the air with Patrick Bet david who is a prolific content creator, producer, author, and CEO of both PHP Agency and Valuetainment Media. He's the author of the soon-to-be-released book called Your Next Five Moves, Think Clearer, Solve Faster, Scale Bigger, and Achieve Your Vision as an Entrepreneur. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. After the break, we're going to hear more about some of the concepts in his book that I think are quite riveting. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Patrick Bett-David, a prolific content creator, producer, author, and CEO of both PHP Agency and Valuetainment Media. He has cultivated an extremely engaged, organic fan base of over 4 million followers across five media platforms and has an unapologetic and thought-provoking approach to education, conversations, and business. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Before we get into some of the conceptual bit that you put in your in your book that I thought was so compelling, Patrick, let me just give our listeners one more thing from the technical piece that I thought was so amazing, and that's that concept of solving for X decision-making. Will you share that? Yeah, so everything I look at is, is uh, looking at the problem from solve for X, meaning in high school, when you were doing math, it was X plus Y equals nine. You'd figure out what Y is. If Y is six, we already know what X is. X is three, right? Everything in life, I like to look at it from the lens of solving for X. So the more and more questions I ask, I finally realize what the real problem is that we're facing. You know, a lot of times we're just like, oh my gosh, I lost a customer. What do I do? Well, ask the right question. Well, what kind of questions do I ask? Why did you lose the customer? You know, we lost the customer. Why? Well, because the competing products cost less. Why does it cost less? Because it has fewer features. Why does it have future features? Because most customers don't need all the features in one product. Uh-huh. I got it. So, you know, you, you really got to look at everything from a software standpoint, especially when you're building a business, you're going to meet a lot of uh, new challenges that you've never been there before. And if you don't try to get to the bottom of it, a lot of time we just kind of fix things based on surface level. We just put a Band-Aid on it. And you can't put a Band-Aid while you may need a stitching. You can't put a Band-Aid on every single problem. Unfortunately, most of our lives, we solve most of our problems with temporary solutions. Look at where America's at today. Look at all the last few days, the challenges we've been facing. Why are we having these challenges? Everything is a Band-Aid. We keep fixing problems with Band-Aids. What happens? Problems keep reappearing. Sometimes to make the tough decisions and realize what we need to do to lead, is not necessarily the most popular thing we need to be doing, but sometimes those are the things that a leader must do so the same problem doesn't reappear. If we're sitting in a boardroom and we have a challenge we're facing, whatever it could be, a lawsuit, a fine, a software that went wrong, a rogue employee, somebody that uh, defamation of character, whatever it could be. When you're building a business, you could face many different forms of crisis. But when you're sitting there and going through it, one of the questions I ask all our guys is, what do we need to do to make sure this problem never reappears again? What do we need to do? Not to delay this three months, is to make sure it never reappears again. And once we think from that standpoint, sometimes we have to spend a little bit more time about processing that issue. But every time we've done that, it saved us hundreds of future headaches 
which is why, you know, just this month, right now while I'm talking to you on the phone, the month of May just closed for us. Uh, last May, in a month of, uh, in 2019, we sold 5,661 insurance policies in a month. That's without a pandemic, that's without protesting, that's without rice, that's without offices shutting down, and I sell insurance annuities and retirement products, which means we looked at you face-to-face. Well, this year, in a month of May, with all of that, last month we sold 10,670 policies mm-hmm. in a month. It's the first one we cracked 10,000 policies. Why? Because when the pandemic first happened, I was in LA for a board meeting and all my board members canceled it. And De La Hoya, we were all meeting together. They all said, well, I have to go back to Connecticut. I have to go back to New York. Everybody was worried because that's the day. And the NBA shut down, NHL shut down. If you remember, Disney, everybody was panicking. This was like March 11th uh, date that we're talking about. Yep. And I said, wait a minute, if this is happening, what do we got to do? And I was in LA with my wife and three kids and my nanny. I said, let's go to Universal Studios. We're staying at Beverly Hills Hilton. I said, babe, we got to go back today. We were in LA for less than 23 hours. We flew back to Dallas. I came straight to the office, spent 14 hours in the office, locked. I said, don't bother me. I went and researched every pandemic, how the market reacted six months later, how the uh, immediate overreaction and fear is, and how the media makes it bigger, or if it's real, if it's not real. 14 hours. I looked at everything. I said, okay, you have to assume this is bad. So let's assume this is bad and do everything necessary to be prepared for this. But also, on the other side, we have to make some fast pivots. So every presentation was shifted to Zoom. Everything that we did, we auto, uh, made uh, uh, you know, audibles to uh, shift a, a way of selling insurance. I contacted all my carriers to see if they can do certain things to accommodate without having to meet the client to sign off the policy delivery receipt. Long story short, those immediate audits, that, uh, audibles that we made and pivots that we made helped us prepare us for the month of May that we just had. Obviously, June's going to be the biggest ever, but May ended up being the biggest month we've ever had. So all of those things comes together when you solve Forex. Mm. So that just showcases for me, Patrick, just the, the beauty of that magnificent brain that you've cultivated. It's just, it is. And and this idea of five moves in, in advance, now really 15, that's a great way to showcase that. And, and I wanted to make sure that I, we gave that to our, our listeners so that they started to at least approximate or at least step into the space of dancing with you on that level and I do think of you Patrick as a modern day philosopher you are probably the most informed businessman that I've met and so I wanted to have you share a couple of the things that I got from your book that I thought were so compelling on a conceptual level and one is that you talk about religion and business and you say, look, all religions have, have believers and rituals, and what business can succeed without people believing in it? What business doesn't have value, symbols, sayings, credos, et cetera, to make up its culture? And then you go on to say that Google, Apple, Southwest Airlines, and Walmart are all religions. I think this is such a powerful point. Will you say more about your thinking about these two items and how they're related? Absolutely. I mean, Sam Walton is a, is a, could have been a pastor. He could have been a preacher. He yeah. And a prophet. He could have been somebody that's going out there. I mean, what is really the difference? The only difference is here you're talking about profits and business and jobs. And, you know, in religions, you're talking about a higher power and a calling. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to follow certain proverbs. You have to follow certain rituals. You have to create a culture. You have to have a vision of where we're going. There's got to be an end in line why somebody is willing to work very hard to one day see Walmart become the largest employer in America with 2.3 million employees. You know, a Bezos is somebody that's built Amazon as a culture. I know that company may be uh, the most hated company for a lot of people, but if the company's worth a trillion dollars and he's a 16% owner of 
the company, him and his wife, I know the whole detail with the personal life, but let's just say 16%, that's $160 billion to he and his uh, wife. There's another $840 billion of wealth that has been made for other people. It's an interesting story about this guy. The fact that at first, when he started Amazon, he went and raised a million dollars from 20 of his relatives, the relatives and friends. The average person gave him $50,000. Let me say this again. He raised a million dollars. He got $50,000 from 20 different people and he gave up 20% of Amazon. Let me say that again. 20% of Amazon for $1 million. Mm. Those people that bought the 20% of Amazon for $1 million, that 20% is worth $200 billion today. $200 billion. You go look at a Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway is pretty much a religion. He's the prophet. Everybody follows prophet Buffett and he makes predictions. Some right, some wrong. Some of them become right, and some of them don't become right. Uh, you know, there was a guy years ago in 1970-something when he first started Berkshire Hathaway. This man gave Buffett $10,000. You can actually go search this guy's story. He gave him $10,000 and never did anything with the $10,000 till today. Nothing. He just left it with Buffett. That $10,000 today is worth $738 million dollars. He never took the money out, not a penny of it. Mm -hmm. He lived off of everything else that he had. So in the world of business and a culture that you're creating, whether you're working and playing for Notre Dame football, Notre Dame, or you're playing for Bill Belichick and the the New England Patriots or Phil Jackson from the Bulls or the Lakers or Greg Popovich, or I can go on saying a lot of different stories. Everything will come down to a culture led by a visionary, a prophet that creates a certain set of a certain set of culture or a certain set of standards and criterias and rituals that people follow. And then he eventually finds a true believer. And once you find true believers who fully buy into what you want to do, the rest is history. Because everybody else says, if Bobby is a true, true believer to Johnny, why am I not believing Johnny? Then Bobby helps convert other people into believing Johnny. And this example could be if you know, a Balmer believes in Bill Gates, why don't I believe in Bill Gates? If Paul Allen believes in Bill Gates, why don't I believe in Bill Gates? If Steve Wozniak believes Steve Jobs, why don't I believe in Steve Jobs? So, you know, very a lot of similarities when you see these companies that do it well. And it's, by the way, it's one of the reasons also when they get a black guy, because some people say, well, I don't like what they're doing here. I understand it. I didn't say you're going to like it. I just tell you it's very effective. And if you really broke it down, it's what makes a great organization based on those certain principles that we just talked about. Uh, so what I like about that, Patrick, and what I wanted to, why I wanted to share that is because when people start to open their minds to thinking on that much higher level, they can see things much differently than, than, than they do from this very low-level singular mm-hmm. tree perspective. That's why I wanted you to share that. Thank you so much. We're, we're coming close to the end of the show, so I want to give you a choice, Patrick. If you will either, for this last question, talk about either your chapter four on how mobsters sell, negotiate, and influence, which I think is very PBS-esque, the way that you talk about that, or if you want to talk about the, the story about Eli, which one do you want to finish with? Uh, you know, we can talk about we can talk about the mob side. We can talk about that okay. side on the sell, negotiate, and influence. You know, I've had the chance for, you know, one day I get a call from my booker, and he tells me, I got this mobster I want you to interview. I'm like, I'm the entrepreneur channel. Why would I interview this mobster? So I'm telling you, you want to interview this guy. So I said, no, I'm good. He says, Pat, a year and a half, we go back and forth. He says, here's why you need to interview him. Finally, I decide to interview him. So I'm sitting at Jordan Belfort's house. This is the man, the Wolf of Wall Street. 
and I'm talking to him and I'm doing an interview. On the way back at Newport Beach, I interviewed this mobster, Michael Francis. When I sit down at his place and I'm interviewing him, we're not, we have no idea what's going to happen. I had no idea two years later that was going to get 10 million views on YouTube and, and translated in Russian, all these other languages. It's gone around 100 million views, this interview that I did. Long story short, after that interview, all the mobsters around the world started calling me. So Oscar Goodman, who was Tony Spilatra's uh, 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 attorney, and also a three-time uh, mayor of Las Vegas for 12 years, and his wife's now the mayor of Las Vegas, he calls me, we do his interview. That one gets nearly a million views. We do Frank Collada, who was in the movie Casino, which uh, Frank is a pretty serious gangster from Chicago. We do his interview, he gets a few million views. Then I interviewed all these other guys, and then eventually Sammy the Bull Carvano, uh, that we do the interview. He's only done two interviews. One is with Diane Sawyer and the other one is with me. We interview him. Then you got uh, uh, Phil Leonetti and, and Ralph Natale, all these other names. Anyways, here's one of the things I learned about interviewing these folks. And obviously as a kid, I grew up with my dad watching all the mob movies, The Godfathers, The Bronx Tale, The Casinos, The Goodfellas, all of them. When you go into, when I was a kid coming to Germany, my dad protected me from all evil things because in Iran he was so paranoid uh, of what could happen to his kids. So I was never allowed to play outside. He was always there. He was so paranoid. So when I went to Germany, I thought everybody was good, meaning every person was good. Like they all wanted the good for me. When I got to this refugee camp, I'm from Iran. There were people there from Pakistan, Afghanistan, you know, Yugoslavia at the time, Czech, Poland, everywhere. And I'm a 10-year-old kid who grew up pretty sheltered, you know, church, all this other stuff. Next thing you know, these kids really start bullying me. And I got stabbed one night by this Afghani kid who kind of played the role of being my friend. And then he betrayed me. And then all of a sudden in a fight, he stabbed me. I'm like, wait a minute, what the hell just happened? That day, I learned not everybody wants the best in you. And that's okay. So today... When my son, Dylan, whom everybody likes him today, I'm very careful to say, Dylan, everybody likes you. I'll always say, Dylan, almost everybody likes you. And he'll ask me, Dad, why do you say almost? I said, because not everybody likes you. What do you mean not everybody likes I said, because not everybody likes your daddy, and that's okay. You can't get everybody to like you. So I'm very careful to not get him to think that in life everybody's supposed to like him. What does this have to do with business? Everything. If you ever decide to want to do something big, you have to know that you're gonna piss a lot of people off. And you can't be naive to think everybody wants you to win big. When we were small and we only had 66 agents, a lot of my competitors would call me and they would say things like this. Patrick, we're rooting for you. We love you. We wish you nothing but the best. We think you're gonna do great, buddy. I'm like, oh wow, these are such nice people. But in the back of my hand, my head, I already knew that's not the case. And then eventually when we got bigger, Next thing you know, who do you think you are? What makes you think you can do this? And what makes you think you can do that? I said, listen, I told you a long time ago I'm going to compete. Now that we're actually doing the numbers, now you're not happy with me. I thought you said you were supporting me. <laughs> so if you're going to compete in the, in the game of business, chapter five, is move number five is specifically for you because move number five is all about power plays. And if you don't learn and master these power plays, you will find yourself very quickly being bullied around in the marketplace and you'll be disappointed in the business and you'll say, I don't like it. But it's not the fact that you don't like it. You need to learn the power plays because once you learn the power plays, you'll actually enjoy it because it's a game that you can actually play and have a lot of fun with. 
And at the same time, if you do it with the right people, you can also make a lot of money with. So yes, there's an element of that, that for those who run businesses, uh, that section of the book, move number five, is something they'll, they're not just going to read once. They're going to read multiple times. No, there's a, there's, it's just chewy. And here we are out of time, Patrick. If, say in just 30 seconds or less, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Uh, all I want to leave my listeners with is take some time to figure out exactly who you want to be. Forget about everybody else. Forget about me. Forget about anybody in your family, what they've done, how big they've done it. Don't compare yourself. Who do you want to be? Get clear on it. What kind of a life you want to live? And then based on that, go put your pieces of the puzzle together and go make it happen. Beautiful, Patrick. Thank you so much for being my guest and sharing who you are with listeners across the globe to make their lives better. Thank you. I appreciate you very much. You know how much I respect you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that. Listeners, you want to learn more about Patrick Bet David, PHP Agency, Valuetainment Media, his books, or his thought leadership, you can start by visiting patrickbetdavid.com. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a VA recorded podcast. We were on air with Ray White talking about the importance of monitoring, cultivating mental health in the workplace to reduce stress and increase productivity and innovation and do so effectively through the Voyages app he created. Next, we will be, we'll be on air with Christian Krom, a futurist from the Netherlands and author of Humanification, Go Digital, Stay Human. We'll be talking about the opportunity we as humans have when we collaborate with technology to elicit our higher human competencies in the workplace and usher in a bright future that nonetheless needs our intentional stewardship. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose. <laughs>